Hello listeners. Welcome to Itihasa, a Indic history podcast. And you're listening to episode 19 of this season Vijayanagara. This is the 8th installment in the foundation series of this season. In the last episode, we started exploring the beginning of the end of the Tughlaq Sultanate and its incessant conflicts with the kingdoms of the south and Amirs of the Deccan. We also looked at some of the foolhardy policies of Muhammad bin Tughlaq which directly led to the Deccan Amirs transplanted by him rebelling twice unsuccessfully. We had ended the previous episode with a reference to Muhammad bin Tughlaq's decision to implement the token currency system across the empire which had a far-reaching impact on the health of the empire. And this is from where we will resume the story today in this episode and end it with the birth of Vijayanagara's nemesis the Bahmanis as we know subduing and administering an empire the size of indian subcontinent requires humongous amounts of financing and in those days the main medium of exchange was either silver or gold after the tughlaq empire ballooned to the size of the subcontinent there was a realization that the current revenues weren't going to be enough to fund the repeated military expeditions all over the empire to hold it together but there was only so much bullion to go around and due to the shortages Muhammad bin Tughlaq proposed a radical idea of introducing token currency token currency is somewhat like fiat currency of today a central authority designates and mints a particular medium as a legal tender an acceptable medium of exchange for taxation trade and commerce purposes so the tughlaq sultan designated copper coins which are also known as mohurs or tankas these tankas were minted by a central treasury as the only acceptable currency and the whole of the empire was forced to use it as a replacement of gold and silver and anyone who showed reluctance to receive it was punished severely what this policy led to was a huge rise in the forgeries of tankas across the empire forging the copper tankas had become literally a cottage industry and the empire's financial system invariably got flooded with mountains of forged tankas this led to hyperinflation within the empire and finally foreign traders and other countries refused to accept the token currency as a valid exchange medium and this currency became so worthless that the whole financial system was frozen in tracks and the reality of the monumental failure of this economic policy finally dawned on the sultan he had no choice but to repeal his earlier edict and unfreeze the economy he ordered that whoever possessed these copper tankas should bring them to the treasury and receive equivalent gold or silver coins in exchange let's look at an interesting excerpt from a famous muslim chronicler ziauddin barani on this matter quote people who possessed thousands of these copper coins and had flung them into the corners along with their copper pots 
now brought them to the treasury and received in exchange gold and silver tankas shashaganis and duganis unquote people profited greatly by this arrangement and they became really wealthy great sums went out of the treasury in exchange for the copper and a great deficiency was caused for a long time even after muhammad bin tughlaq's reign the copper coins remain lying in heaps in the palace of tughlaqabad whether foolish or clever it was a daring attempt by muhammad bin tughlaq to introduce fiat currency in india way ahead of his time the idea was sound but the execution was completely botched leading to a financial collapse which invariably led to anger against the tughlaqs there is no doubt this would have poured fuel on the existing fires that were raging across the empire leading to even more intense rebellions and attempts to bring down the tughlaqs all over the subcontinent it is said that muhammad bin tughlaq was inspired by his near contemporary kublai khan who was a mongol emperor of china kublai khan was the first one to introduce paper currency in his empire and it was a huge success the reason kublai succeeded was his flawless execution of the idea he had ensured that the paper currency he put out in circulation would be very hard to forge and he also made sure that any bullion exchange coming in or going out of his empire would only go through the central treasury kublai khan also had a smart policy of buying out all the gold and silver that was in rotation at regular intervals and that to at a handsome exchange rate that was very favorable to the seller this encouraged the sellers to turn in their bullion for the paper currency which then kept the whole system well oiled and only increased the value and legitimacy of the fiat currency system in vogue in comparison muhammad bin tughlaq hadn't put in place any measures to make forging of his new token currency harder which ultimately led to the entire currency system collapsing now that we understand the impact of muhammad bin tughlaq's radical token currency policy let's go back to the point where the sultan decides to replace his empire's entire nobility with his own puppets from the poor strata of the society if tughlaqi violence flawed economic policy and forced migrations across the empire was the fuse then this policy to replace the nobility was a proverbial spark that lit the fuse especially in the heart of his empire we now jump to 1345 ad and the circumstances of this rebellion which are really interesting the tughlaq sultan was told that there had been a huge embezzlement by the subordinates of the viceroy of deccan kutluk khan with the result being that the revenue of the deccan provinces fell from crores and lakhs to a few thousands it seems that there was a faction at the tughlaq court that hated kutluk khan's influence and reputation in the eyes of muhammad bin tughlaq it plotted against him by spreading this embezzlement lie this faction at the court somehow gained influence over the sultan and convinced him to recall the supposedly corrupt viceroy back to delhi 
the sultan replaces qutlu khan with his own puppets he especially sends a bloodthirsty lieutenant aziz khamar of malwa to the deccan with secret orders to not spare all those who had taken part in the plots against the empire aziz khamar on arriving in dhar the chief town of his division summons 89 of the local amirs and tells them that the cause for the rebellions in the south were the amirs of devagiri or also known as dolatabad and to instill fear in anyone thinking of rebelling aziz has all the 89 local amirs executed for no fault of theirs they were all executed just to send a message in spite of being innocent the result was however just the opposite of what had been expected by aziz all the amirs of the deccan in dolatabad gujarat and maharashtra were filled with resentment and hatred against the tughlaq sultan who could have the innocents executed for the supposed faults of others shortly after this the region of gujarat rose in rebellion under the leadership of four local amirs and forced the provincial governor to flee from his post and retreat to naharwala or also known as aniharwala the rebels were so successful that they were able to capture the port of kambe in gujarat after this they defeated aziz khamar and had him executed at baroda this event forces mohammed bin tughlaq to march on gujarat in person to quell this rebellion he defeats the rebel amirs on the banks of narmada and most of them flee either to dolatabad or take refuge elsewhere many suspected disloyal amirs of gujarat were rounded up and beheaded by malik maqbul who was the trusted man of the sultan and whereas the sultan levies heavy taxes on the population of gujarat as a retribution after successfully suppressing the rebellion of gujarat the sultan sends his trusted men to the deccan to invite the amirs of raichur mudgal gulbarga bijapur ganjauti and berar to dolatabad under the pretext of joining him on the campaign in gujarat the amirs of deccan somehow sensed that they were probably being called to gujarat in order to be ambushed and executed by the sultan on arrival but still they decided to give a benefit of doubt to him and go to dolatabad from here they join a royal cavalcade that headed towards the city of baruch in gujarat on the first night of travel all the deccan amirs convene in the darkness of the night and discuss the situation they were in and they come to the conclusion that they were definitely summoned by the sultan to be executed and so they decided to abort their trip the next day the deccan amirs ambush the sultan's lieutenants who were escorting them and head back to dolatabad immediately the dolatabad governor who was still asleep when the rebel amirs arrived is caught off guard and the rebels take over the city after 3 days of pitched battles within the city with the important tughlaq city of dolatabad finally falling to the deccan amirs they elect one of their own nasiruddin ismail shah as a first independent sultan of deccan the deccan amirs were forced to select a sultan from among them as they didn't want their war for independence 
fizzle out prematurely due to lack of a visible leader around whom all the rebels can rally. The selection of Ismail Shah was therefore made after careful deliberation. He was a very senior Amir of Devagiri, in charge of 2,000 villages, and his elder brother was one of the greatest nobles in Sultan Muhammad bin Tughlaq's court and commanded the armies of Malwa. Here something interesting happens. Ismail Shah initially refuses the crown and instead he nominates the much younger and dynamic Hassan Gangu to be crowned as the first Sultan of Independent Deccan. But since Hassan Gangu was busy fighting the Tughlaq forces, the Amirs go ahead and crown Ismail Shah as a Sultan. And the new Sultan of Deccan grants special honours to Hassan Gangu along with the title of Zafar Khan and few other Amirs. While this incident of sacrificing the crown sounds very romantic, in my opinion, it was a very clever real politic by Ismail Shah. If one thinks about it, he was hitting two birds with one stone. On one hand, by rejecting the crown, he was only making the case for him to sit on the throne much stronger. And by making Hassan Gangu as a sultan, in the event that the rebellion had collapsed, Hassan Gangu would have been the first one on the chopping block. Again, this is my own opinion on Ismail Shah's ulterior motives for this act of sacrificing the throne. A month or two after Ismail Shah's ascension, one of his armors, Nuruddin, proceeded to Gulbarga to lay siege against one of the local chiefs by the name Kandra, who had put to death a number of Muslims, supposedly including a local Muslim saint. While Nuruddin was conducting his siege, Kandra was able to send a clever letter to a Tughlaq commander, Jalal Dhoni, who was holding the garrison of Kalyani, inciting him to attack Nuruddin in Gulbarga in the name of Sultan Muhammad bin Tughlaq against a common enemy. When the fledgling Deccan Sultanate heard of this, they sent back up forces against the Tughlaq commander, whom they were able to defeat on the field. But Khandra was still holding the Gulbarga fort and successfully withering the siege. The thing with sieges is, in most cases, the longer a siege goes, the more dangerous it starts becoming for the besieger, due to logistical reasons and coupled with the problem of attrition. It is at this point that Zafar Khan, Aka Hassan Gangu, gets a dream one night in which a divine voice tells him to go to Gulbarga and help his friends and companions there. He first rushes to the fort of Sagar, captures it and completes a flanking move to protect his army better. And then he proceeds to the fort of Gulbarga when Nuruddin was conducting the siege, which was already in its fourth month. In the meantime, the Deccan Sultan Ismail Shah fearing an imminent attack by Tughlaqs on the now Deccan capital of Dalatabad, recalls part of his army to the capital to bolster its defences. It is here that there are two opinions among Nuruddin and Hassan Gangu on whether to risk compromising their position and siege of Gulbarga by sending a part of their army to the capital. Hassan Gangu refuses to heed the orders of his Deccan Sultan Ismail Shah 
and instead gives a rousing speech to his army asking him to be firm in their resolve to capture Gulbarga Hasan Gangu's risky move pays off handsomely as the army fights tooth and nail with great vigor finally capturing the Gulbarga fort and putting Kandra to flight Hasan Gangu having accomplished his purpose returns victorious to Daulatabad Meanwhile Muhammad bin Tughlaq himself marches on the Daulatabad and a battle is now forced between both sides the Deccan army fight valiantly against the Tughlaqs and just when the Deccanese were a hair breadth away from a glorious victory a stray arrow hits Nuruddin who was commanding the center of the Deccan army this creates a panic in the Deccan army and a substantial section of the royal bodyguard cavalry takes to flight the tables were now turned against the deccan sultan ismail shah and hasan gangu who was holding the left flank of the deccan army comes under heavy attack once again hasan gangu fights valiantly against tughlaq army and attempts a last ditch attack but the tughlaq successfully repel his attack and is forced to fight a rear guard action to reduce losses in the remaining deccan army under his command and he also helps the remaining forces under ismail shah retreat safely hasan clearly shows his immense courage and tactical talents in this incident and he ends up standing out by the end of the day the deccanese had taken a lot of damage and tughlaqs won the day due to sheer luck of a random arrow whizzing through the air and hitting Nuruddin at a right time the deccanese knowing muhammad bin tughlaq's strategy well enough they decide to not concentrate their forces and instead choose a new strategy they decide that ismail shah should try to hold dolatabad as much as possible while other deccani leaders proceed to their own jagirs and defend them against tughlaqs the idea of deccanese was to deprive muhammad bin tughlaq a way to strike a decisive blow on them by spreading out tughlaq would have to overstretch his forces and take a risk of getting tied up on multiple fronts or maybe even ambushed but the deccan sultan ismail shah found his position in the capital daulatabad untenable and he preemptively vacates it and then moves to a fortified place called dharakera which is in the modern day nandod district gujarat he hoped that this fort could withstand a protracted siege by the tughlaq army the next day mohammed bin tughlaq occupies dolatabad once again which had been left undefended after ismail shah vacates it the mohammed bin tughlaq orders a general amnesty to all the political prisoners and then sends his trusted commanders malik jauhar and sheikh burhan bilarami to lay siege against dharakera where ismail shah was holed up whereas another tughlaq commander imudul mulk sartez was sent to gulbarga to capture it from hasan gangu it was a two pronged attack on deccan amirs who were spread out tughlaq forces were forced to spread out too and this was to deccan sultanate's advantage while ismail shah was holed up in dharakera the tughlaq commander malik jauhar 
started killing the earlier pardoned prisoners of war in Dalatabad and committing atrocities on its citizens as a retribution. Meanwhile, Hasan Gangu vacated Gulbarga as a part of a clever strategy and then went to Arka. The Deccan Amirs then convened at Arka and Hasan Gangu proposed that they first launch an blitzkrieg attack against Malik Johar in Dalatabad and then tackle Imadul Mulk Sartez wherever he was to be found. When Sartez heard that Hasan Gangu was marching to Dalatabad, he vacated Gulbarga and raced to intercept Hasan before he could reach Dalatabad. Hasan cleverly intercepts and ambushes Sartez's advance guard forces and defeats them near Dalatabad. And then Hasan marches to Bir, also known as Bid in Maharashtra, and captures it. From there, he captures a big granary at Mahaba in Maharashtra near Godavari River. Here, Hasan Gangu gets intelligence that Sartez and his large army were spotted by his scouts at a place called Sindhatan in Deccan. He changes his tactics immediately, marches at a rapid pace to Sindhatan and catches Sartez by surprise. After some preliminary skirmishes between both the sides, Hasan Gangu's forces and 1500 auxiliary cavalry sent by the Kaulas of Telangana launch a mass attack on the Tughlaq commander Sartez and rout his forces completely. Here I have to make a small note about the Kaulas of Telangana who sent the auxiliary cavalry to Hasan Gangu. These Kaulas are the same Kaulas of the Kaulas fort in Telangana which is 200 kilometers from Hyderabad. It is one of the most impregnable forts of Telangana and also one of the most contested forts during the medieval period. This fort, Kaulas fort was built in the 9th century by the Rashtrakutas. Then it was taken over by Chalukyas, then by Kakatiyas, then by Musunuri Nayakas, then by Bahmanis, then by Qutub Shahs, then by Mughals, then by Marathas and then finally by Asif Jahis. So you see there's a lot of history and Kaulas were really important in this battle for Hasan Gangu. Now let's come back to the battle between Hasan Gangu and the Tughlaq commander Sartez. So Sartez here tries to flee from the battlefield but is hit by an arrow then captured by a Deccani soldier and beheaded on the spot. With the fall of its commander the remaining Tughlaq army lays down its weapons and surrenders to Hasan Gangu. As a result huge amounts of weapons treasure fine horses and thousands of female and male slaves are captured by the deccan army with this decisive defeat mohammed bin tughlaq's attempts to defeat the rebels and a nascent deccan sultanate were completely foiled and this also saw the mettle of a young and dynamic hasan gangu being tested successfully against the mighty mohammed bin tughlaq himself This made him a popular war hero in the Deccan and he was given a grand royal welcome befitting the occasion by its sultan Ismail Shah as he entered Dawlatabad. The Deccan sultan Ismail Shah also realized the extent of Hasan Gangu's popularity and status that he acquired after brilliant display of his tactics and courage in the battles with Tughlaq overlords. 
fortnight after Hassan's arrival in Daulatabad, Ismail Shah called a meeting of all of the powerful men in Deccan and announced his decision to abdicate the throne in favor of Hassan Gangu. This second time sacrifice of the throne too, as romantic as it may sound, the reality is Ismail Shah's old age and his ineptitude made it really difficult for him to hold on to the throne. In the face of Hassan Gangu's back-to-back successes, talents and immense popularity among the soldiers, nobility and people, it was only very difficult for Ismail Shah to be in the shadow of Hassan Gangu. With that, the army and all of the nobility present in the court unanimously elected Hassan Gangu, alias Zafar Khan, as a new sultan with the title Alauddin Hassan Bahman Shah. The Alauddin was a reference or an ode to the Alauddin Khilji previously. You see, Hassan Gangu and his family had close relations with the Khilji dynasty. So Hassan was officially crowned in 1347 AD in the mosque of Qutbuddin Mubarak Shah Khilji. It is said that the new Sultan Bahman Shah selected one of the auspicious days chosen by Hindu astrologers instead, which also happened to be a Friday. And with this event, the Bahmani Sultanate takes birth and will remain a thorn in the side of Vijayanagara for a long time to come. Before we end this episode, I have to tell you a story or should I say a controversial narrative about Bahman Shah's pre-coronation name, which we saw was Hassan Gangu. Farishta in his chronicles on Bahman Shah's antecedents claims that Hassan was originally a lowly farmer who had worked for a Brahmin named Gangu. And one fine day, Hassan supposedly found a pot of gold in the Brahmin's field and he diligently took it to his master. The Brahmin was so impressed and overjoyed with his farmkeeper's honesty that he immediately took him to the royal court and explained what had happened. The crown prince too was so impressed with Hassan's integrity and honesty that he was generously rewarded. And after this incident, Hassan added the name Gangu to his existing name to fulfill a promise he made to the Brahmin Gangu previously. In my opinion, this is one of Farishta's antics, wherein he is taking liberty with the facts at hand. He seems to be conveniently picking the most sensational story or rumor of the day and then he dwells on it as a matter of fact. It's worth remembering that Farishta was the official court chronicler of the Bijapuri court in the 16th century. And the kingdom of Bijapur itself was a fragment that broke off from the erstwhile Bahmani kingdom. And there is a possibility of some acts to grind against the previous overlords of Bijapur to please the reigning Adil Shah. It's a complex story in its own right, which is out of scope of this episode. I thought it's just worth mentioning this aspect for what it's worth. When it comes to Hassan Gangu, the reality instant was, Hassan was a nephew of a Khilji noble, Malik Hizbaruddin with the title of Zafar Khan. This Zafar Khan had died in a battle against Turkic hordes in 1298 AD 
when Hassan was only 6 years old. And this is why Hassan Gangu too adopted the same title of Zafar Khan, which was an ode to his brave uncle. Bahmanis as such were known to have descended from a Persian dynasty called Bahman. And his coronation title, Alauddin Bahman Shah, clearly reflects that. Coming to his pre-coronation name of Hassan Gangu, the Gangu in it is said to be actually Kakuya and it somehow got mutated as it travelled over different linguistic barriers ending up as Kanku and then Gangu. Some astute listeners who have been paying real close attention to the foundation episodes will see a pattern in some narratives of the Bijapuri court chronicler Farishta. In the foundation part Rise of Phoenix we saw how Farishta lends credence to the narrative of Sangama brothers converting to Islam. And then in this episode, we see he lends credence to a lowly farm worker, Hassan Gangu, being named after a Hindu Brahmin. The pattern is the same. Undermining both the Vijayanagara and Bahamani founders by highlighting the worst of the theories that either weaken or cast doubt on the religious credentials while mysteriously ignoring other better explanations. If there is anyone who stands to gain from this false propaganda, it is none other than Farishta and his Bijapuri Sultan. The Sultan would have shown himself as belonging to a truly royal bloodline when compared to the impure and compromised Vijayanagara and Bahamini rulers. Because you see, when Bahamini kingdom later declines, it breaks up into five pieces and the founders of four of them don't exactly have a noble or royal lineage. So the Bijapuris had every motive to indulge in the smearing of Bahman Shah's antecedents or his lineage. These two cases illustrate the power of narratives over us. It's immaterial if they're true or not, but once they take hold, in our minds a seed of doubt is sown which takes on a form of its own, after enough repetition and quoting of it by people coming later, it will become indistinguishable from the truth, and it can live for hundreds of years masquerading as a fact right in front of our eyes. And here we will end this episode, in which we saw the birth of Bahmanis, who will go on to be the arch rivals of the mighty Vijayanagara Empire. The Deccan will be witness to some epic showdowns and a tug of war between them, which we'll explore later in the season. In the next episode, we will look at the fascinating character of Vidyaranya, his role in the foundation of Vijayanagara Empire, and his influence on the Sangama brothers. We will also explore some of the theories around the role of Sringeri Matha to which Vidyaranya belonged. I sincerely hope the listeners enjoyed this episode and if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and a review wherever it is that you are listening. A huge thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. I hope to see you soon in the next episode. Till then, this is Narendra Vikram, your host and narrator, signing off. Hope you have a great week ahead.